Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's special episode is by Dr. Tara Sewell Lassiter. Dr. Sewell Lassiter received her PhD in history from the University of Houston in 2020. Her research focuses on Hellenistic Egypt, numismatics, and gender, specifically exploring the roles open to royal women in Ptolemaic Egypt and the expressions of female power on coinage. Her dissertation, Becoming Cleopatra, Ptolemaic Royal Marriage, Incest, and the Path to Female Rule, provides the first overarching and comparative study of Hellenistic Egyptian queens from the origins of the dynasty to the final ruler, Cleopatra VII. She hopes to turn her dissertation into a book and has two articles forthcoming on Ptolemaic queenship. Today, Dr. Siwa Lassiter details how Napoleon's three-year campaign in Egypt birthed modern Egyptology. The scholars that accompanied Napoleon made incredible discoveries, the most important of which was the Rosetta Stone, which allowed historians to read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and recover thousands of years of lost history. France has had an important, albeit complex, relationship with Egyptian history as French scholars led the world in the study of this ancient culture while igniting controversy through their accumulation of artifacts. Please enjoy. Historians often delineate the history of an area into various periods or timelines in order to make them easier to study. Just as France had an ancient period of development, was influenced by the Greeks, dominated by the Romans, and transitioned into the medieval, so too did Egypt follow a similar pattern. Egypt has a long history which can be traced through several periods of achievement and conquest. It was one of the cradles of civilization during the Pharaonic period of 3500 to 332 BCE, It then entered into the Classical period when it was conquered by Alexander the Great in 332 BCE, ruled by the Hellenistic Ptolemies from 323 to 30 BCE, and it was ruled by Rome from 30 BCE to 395 CE. The territory was ruled by the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire from 395 to 619 CE, and then the Sassanid Persian Empire from 619 to 641 CE. After the Islamic conquest in 641, Egypt became a province of successive caliphates and Muslim dynasties, including the Rashidun, Umayyad, Abbasid, Fatimid, Ayyubid, Mamluk, and then the Ottoman Empire. Egypt remained part of the Ottoman Empire until 1882, with a brief interlude of French rule from 1798 to 1801 under Napoleon Bonaparte, and it became part of the British Empire in 1882. The British Empire dominated Egypt until 1953, when the country declared its independence from foreign rule. The period we are concerned with today is, of course, the French period from 1798 to 1801. This period of French occupation, while brief, would have a lasting effect on the study of Egypt, one that is still felt by Egyptologists today. But before we get to the nitty-gritty of the expedition itself, one note must be made. 
the napoleonic expedition of seventeen ninety eight is often heralded as a rediscovery of egypt the term rediscovery is not completely accurate however as travel to and writing about egypt was popular throughout history for instance since pharaonic egypt was a civilization that lasted for thousands of years even the greeks and romans considered it ancient the greek writer herodotus known as europe's father of history wrote a chapter on egypt in his work the histories which included a brief overview of pharaonic chronology and the cultural traditions of the egyptians it was an important first attempt by a non-egyptian to chronicle the history of pharaonic egypt even if it had some noticeable errors following herodotus the hellenistic historian eratosthenes of kyrene described egypt in his geographica later the roman historian strabo included egypt in his geography in addition to well-known greek and roman scholars graffiti in the valley of the kings the mortuary temple of hatshepsut and other monuments throughout egypt reveal that it was a popular destination for greek and roman travelers travel to egypt slowed by the third century c e during the third century crisis when much of the roman centralized authority and administration broke down after the roman empire was split by emperor diocletian in the fourth century egypt became part of the eastern half of the empire later termed the byzantine empire the period from the fourth to seventh centuries is defined by the growing influence of christianity in the area so most of the travel to and writings about egypt from this period involved religious turmoil and covered the disagreements within the various ecumenical councils such as the arian controversy and the monophysite schism in the seventh century islamic rule replaced byzantine rule due to the islamic government's policy of tolerance the nile valley once again became a popular travel destination as egypt became a base for islamic military expansion further into north africa and the mediterranean many arab soldiers passed through or settled in egypt on the way to new postings additionally egypt became a center of islamic learning as the foundational area for two of the four schools of islamic law and people from all over the islamic world traveled to egypt to learn from the teachers of these two schools of jurisprudence in addition to religious scholarship however islamic rulers also encouraged the writing of history since the study of human history was described in the quran as being both a need and a duty very soon after the islamic conquest the first muslim egyptian historian ibn abd al-hakam wrote a detailed history of the muslim conquest of egypt and its aftermath each of the succeeding islamic dynasties had historians of their rule and these same historians produced a corpus of arabic material on ancient egyptian culture and monuments writing hundreds of works on ancient egypt during the twelve hundred year period of muslim rule furthermore travel to and writing about egypt by europeans continued during the islamic period as well in fact by the late seventeenth and early eighteenth centuries the ottoman government permitted increasing numbers of europeans to travel to egypt these early european travelers provided the first examples of modern antiquarians who explored the country and took egyptian artifacts and mummies back to their home countries for study for instance john greaves measured the pyramids and cloud Sikau, with the aid of the greek and roman authors identified thebes memnon and the valley of the kings benoit de maillet richard pocock and frederick ludwig norden all traveled to egypt and produced books on the monuments along the nile which circulated throughout europe so where does the napoleonic expedition come in the early european travelers who ventured into ottoman controlled egypt 
increased interest in the region throughout elite european circles and this rising interest coincided with the period of colonial expansion france wanted to compete with britain's colonial empire and acquire a territory as equally lucrative and prestigious as india according to nina burley a scholar from columbia university quote, napoleon and the french government hoped that taking egypt would be the first step towards founding a grand french empire that would encompass generous swaths of africa and asia end quote. accordingly in seventeen eighty nine napoleon and his army seized control of egypt from the ottomans by establishing a strong mediterranean presence napoleon also hoped to weaken britain's access to their territories in india thereby increasing his own power most importantly napoleon heralded the conquest as a mission civilisatrice and brought with him a hundred and sixty-seven scientists historians writers artists and linguists to explore and record the ruins of ancient egypt the expedition established the commission of the sciences and arts which remained even after napoleon left egypt in eighteen o one while these scholars are generally remembered for the work they did on preserving the history of egypt it should also briefly be mentioned that the commission included french geologists mathematicians astronomers chemists botanists and engineers many of whom would go on to make great discoveries and or help establish important research institutions in france for example my personal favorite is nicolas jacques conte who invented the modern pencil but anecdotes aside their most important endeavor for our purposes today was that the scholars of the commission produced the monumental work the description of egypt twenty-four volumes of text and twelve of plates were assembled during the period of eighteen o nine to eighteen twenty nine and they comprehensively catalogued all the information the commission gathered about ancient egypt including monuments natural history and aspects of social and political history this work was important not only because of its scale but also for the effort that was put into it it is a very early example of the scientific accumulation of data and systematic cataloging features that would later become key components of the fields of archaeology and egyptology the description was also not the only work to come out of this expedition for example prior to the publication of the description an individual member of the expedition dominique vivant denon produced a book entitled journey in lower and upper egypt in which he attempted to create a detailed and comprehensive survey of surviving Egyptian monuments, accompanied by his own drawings of the structures. As a result of the book's popularity, Denon was later appointed as the first director of the Louvre. This work is another example of the early scholarly endeavor to begin categorizing facets of Egyptian history and surveying the remaining monuments. Both of these works are often credited as setting the foundation for the modern field of Egyptology accordingly the expedition and its resulting literary products had two major outcomes one negative and one positive first the napoleonic expedition initiated a period known as egyptomania during which european countries became fascinated with egyptian art architecture and aesthetics although it seems that the producers of the description of egypt did not realize that their massive work would inspire a popular craze for all things egyptian manifested in items like furniture decorations and architecture in england france and other areas of europe the wealthy elite patronized artists who could produce clocks tables and chairs in a neoclassical egyptian style and they attended egyptian themed entertainments such as the popular verdi opera aida 
If you Google Egyptomania and go to the Images tab, you will be presented with a plethora of associated images, both of Egyptian-themed advertisements from the time and of people in Egyptian costumes or with Egyptian-style furnishings. This craze, however, had a negative side effect. As Burley acknowledges, it inspired a century of wholesale cultural plunder and insatiable European demand for things Egyptian. This meant that those who could afford it sought not only goods produced in the Egyptian style, but also the real thing. Private travelers to Egypt looted ancient sites for curios, such as scarabs, papyri, and mummies. The artifacts were brought back to Europe to decorate elite homes, be displayed at Egyptian-themed gatherings, or be used in popular entertainments, such as destructive mummy unwrapping parties. Elite Europeans with the money to do so amassed large private collections of Egyptian antiquities, all with no documentation of where the items were found. Most damagingly, the so-called explorers and consul generals of Egypt, men who were endorsed by the nation they represented to collect and sell antiquities, had the means to confiscate much larger features. Men like Bernardino Drovetti, who sold artifacts to the Museo Exigio in Turin and the Louvre, Henry Salt, who sold collections to the British Museum and the Louvre, and Giovanni Battista Belzoni, who acquired monumental carvings for the British Museum, all controlled the antiquities trade into Europe for a 30-year period of unbridled pillage during the early 1800s. For instance, Giovetti and Belzoni both removed entire monuments and wall carvings, at times blasted from their original positions with dynamite back to their home countries and museums, all while producing no records of the original edifices. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. The Egyptomania fad, and even these early looters, had one positive outcome, however. It encouraged the increased interest of European scholars who studied pharaonic Egyptian history and language, which led to the creation of the field of Egyptology and the first large-scale systematic study of Egypt. For example, as a result of the acts of plunder by men like Dravetti and Belzoni, key artifacts such as the Rosetta Stone found new homes in European research institutions. So why was the Rosetta Stone, along with the French and English scholars who studied it, a key artifact in establishing the field of Egyptology? The Rosetta Stone itself is a large stela, which was issued by an assembly of Egyptian priests in 196 BCE during the Ptolemaic period to commemorate the inclusion of the pharaoh Ptolemy V Epiphanes into the Ptolemaic ruler cult. It is a trilingual proclamation, meaning the text was inscribed in three scripts hieroglyphics, the religious language of Egypt, Demotic, the native Egyptian script used for daily purposes, and Greek, the administrative language of the Ptolemies. It was the first trilingual decree modernly uncovered, although several others are now available since trilingual proclamations were issued by several of the Ptolemaic monarchs. For being such a large stone, it moved a great deal during its period of existence. It was likely placed in a temple after its initial carving, perhaps in the town of Sais. 
After the Roman emperor Theodosius closed all non-Christian temples in the 4th century CE, pagan temples were often reused for building materials, and the Rosetta Stone fell victim to this practice. The top of the stone broke at some point, perhaps by accident during moving, or, more likely, in a deliberate act to deface the images of the deified pharaoh and gods that we now know were usually carved at the tops of these types of stela. The bottom half of the stone was reused in the foundations of a fortress constructed by the Mamluk Sultan Kite Bay in the 15th century outside the town of Rashid, also called Rosetta. Napoleon chose to rebuild this fort during his expedition, renaming it Fort Julien, and during the process, one of the scholars on the expedition, Pierre-François Bocher, discovered the stone and immediately identified the possibilities presented by the trilingual inscription. French scholars were the first to identify and work with the stone, but in 1801, British troops overran Fort Julien, took the stone, and removed it to the British Museum, where it has remained British property under the conditions of the Treaty of Alexandria. Since hieroglyphics was the religious language of ancient Egypt, knowledge of how to read and write it was lost after pagan temples were closed and their priests outlawed in the 4th century CE. The script became a mystery from that point on, and the thousands of years of Egyptian history that were carved into the monuments and temples throughout the country became indecipherable. But, 14 centuries later, using the Rosetta Stone, the French scholar Jean-François Champollion deciphered hieroglyphics by 1822 as described in his Letter to Monsieur Dacier Concerning the Alphabet of the Phonetic Hieroglyphs. Champollion compared the Greek text on the stone to the Demotic text, which he then used to finally unlock the hieroglyphics. His Lettre proposed the first corrected list of alphabetical hieroglyphs and outlined the first notes on the system of grammar. Edwin Bevan, an early 20th century historian of Hellenistic Egypt, nicely sums up the importance of the Rosetta Stone and the decipherment of hieroglyphs in his monumental work, The House of Ptolemy. He stated that, Quote, it was the stone which first gave the key of the ancient language of Egypt, and it is thus the foundation upon which the whole of modern Egyptology has been built up. End quote. Starting in the mid 19th century, the knowledge and scholarship on Egypt increased exponentially, and within a 50 year period, Egyptology would become a thriving area of scholarship. With the system of hieroglyphics unlocked, the initial serious European scholars, such as Carl Richard Lepsius, Auguste Mariette, James Henry Breasted, and Alan Gardner, produced the first works on ancient Egyptian history and culture that were corroborated with Egyptian inscriptions. As a result of the increased interest in Egyptian history and the ability to learn about the culture through their own writings, there was a move away from the wanton looting of the earlier periods and the implementation of more scientific methodology. The men just listed instituted the earliest scientific practices of archaeology and Egyptology, including photographing objects in place before extracting them and taking detailed notes of where and how artifacts were found. The shift from looting to Egyptology was also furthered by W.M. Flinders Petrie, who developed the first European systematic methodological approaches to Egyptian archaeology and developed a system of dating based on the pottery findings at a site. Around the same time, the French Egyptologist Emmanuel de Roger, another early curator at the Louvre, helped establish Egyptology as an academic discipline in France. All of these men were contemporaries of Howard Carter, 
whose discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922 initiated a second phase of Egyptomania throughout Europe, although this second phase was not accompanied by the wide-scale looting of the first. Carter, for example, meticulously catalogued the tomb over a period of several years under the auspices of the Egyptian Department of Antiquities, which at the time was directed by the French Egyptologist Pierre Lacot, who ensured the artifacts from the tomb went to the recently built Egyptian Museum in Cairo rather than to the Louvre or the British Museum. From this point on, Egyptology became a key area of study in most Western museums and universities. Aaron Peters, who wrote a thesis on the impact of the French expedition on European museums, notes that, while Napoleon's military campaign was a failure, the associated cultural appropriation of Egypt had a lasting effect on European culture, and the enthusiasm for Egypt created by Napoleon's campaign decisively influenced the development of museums in both Europe and the United States. The Louvre, for example, was the first Western art museum to create an Egyptian department. France was also one of the earliest countries to establish Egyptology as a field of study in its universities, thanks to the efforts of Monsieur de Roger. Peters further argues that, quote, Without the Napoleonic Egyptian scientific expedition, Egyptian art might not have become part of the Western art canon or a standard element in the Western Art Survey Museum, end quote. As I hope you have noticed throughout this discussion, many things have been identified by various scholars as the thing that formed the basis of modern Egyptology. From the description of Egypt, to Denon's journey in Lower and Upper Egypt, to the translation of the Rosetta Stone. Rather than being initiated by one specific event or action, however, there was a series of events and actions that all, in conjunction, led to the development of Egyptology. But the one commonality they all seem to share is that they can be traced back to the Napoleonic expedition and the scholars who are allowed to accompany it. I will end here by emphasizing the importance of French scholarship to the field of Egyptology. While the Napoleonic expedition initially caused a period of looting that was detrimental to Egypt, it eventually inspired the field of Egyptology itself. French scholars from the 20th century on continued to define the field, especially as the Louvre became a world-renowned center of learning. Even now, French scholars are some of the foremost in the field, so much so that American Egyptologists, such as myself, who hope to contribute to the scholarship, must learn to read French. The study of Egyptian history is thus undeniably intertwined with French history, and it is interesting to see the impact that an event which might seem inconsequential in the grand scheme of French history, i.e. the three years Napoleon's expedition spent in Egypt, had on our worldwide culture. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.